the things that's really important to me with the close quarter dad community is motivating fathers to take their children into experiences that are oftentimes risky or fearful, at least in the view of the child. The father, of course, knows that it's very safe. But there's so many different things that children are confronted with that they are scared of. And being able to guide them through this so that they come out victorious on the other end, so that they feel that sense of accomplishment and overcoming that challenge, it's critically important for them to build resilience. Today's guest is really exciting, Scott Rosignol. He is a um, author of the book, Help from the Principal's Office. And this book is a discussion about just that. His, his experience with children in his career as a, um, as a school principal, school psychologist, uh, and the specific groups of uh, young people that he's worked in, he has written a field manual for dads about these issues. And, and the book goes so it goes into attention deficit, depression. It, he really covers the spectrum of ages and issues and things that parents are going to have to confront with their children from the unique perspective of a school principal. This is a really incredible book and a wonderful discussion that I have with him. And I think that your big takeaway is going to be the motivation and inspiration and some real actionable tools that you'll be able to use to start that course forward with your kids on how to take them into places where they can build courage and resilience. I know you're gonna enjoy this episode. Let's get started. Welcome to the Close Quarter Dad Podcast, discussions about raising your kids with confidence, safety, and resilience. I'm your host, Adam Mitchell, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I'm extremely happy to be here with Scott Rosinal, author of Help from the Principal's Office, Parenting Advice When Your Kids Have Trouble in School and at Home. Scott, this is uh, an incredible book. Uh, I want to thank you, first of all, before we get started, we jump into the conversations. I want to thank you for the work that you do. Um, and I know that you work with a special group of children. And uh, reading through your history, um, it is really, uh, it's, it's obvious to me, not only as a, a fellow parent, but uh, that you, you have a passion for this work, don't you? I do. And thanks so much, Adam, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, and I admire the work you do a ton too, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that. And I do have a passion. Thank you, uh, for noticing that I really do. And, um, you know, although I'm in my forties, I remember what it's like vividly as a, as a child, a student having difficulties concentrating in class, um, you know, not always being able to meet the, uh, expectations of the adults, um, you know, maybe particularly in schools and, that kind of motivated me to become a school psychologist working with elementary kids. And now I'm the principal of a small alternative school. Um, and I feel like, you know, I'm in a position, I'm very fortunate where I have uh, opportunities to make direct positive impacts uh, on kids' lives. And the point of my book, I hope, is to broaden my reach a little bit and, and reach out to parents, fathers, um, you know, uh, of, of course, particularly. And um, yes, I'm very passionate, and I hope that this uh, allows me to help a lot of people. So I've read a number of books, obviously, being a parent of four myself, and uh, some good, some great, some not so good. This book stood out for me as a field manual for parents. Uh, the language that you use 
is easy. You drill it down to real fundamentals, but I was able to pull out some stuff that I just didn't, uh, I really didn't think through enough. Um, and I'm hoping to get into some of those conversations with you here uh, in this uh, in this episode. But before we go any further, Scott, um, I'm a, I, I, you probably didn't know this. I was born in Manchester, Connecticut. I'm a fellow New Englander. What part okay. of Connecticut are you from? I live in Southington, Adam, kind okay. of in the central part of the state. Yep, great. I actually, uh, when I'm driving back to uh, my home state of Rhode Island, I'm originally from Newport, Rhode Island. I always stop at the Southington Starbucks. So, oh yes, yeah, yeah on Queen yeah, Street. That's a yep, good yep. Stop there, <laughs> Scott. I'd like to start um, in your book, and I think this is a good place to start. You talk about, and it, we come back and we talk about when a child is bothered you really stand on the word distress. And this is unique. I, I haven't I haven't heard the use of this word and how you use it, but it is really one of, it sounds to me like uh, this is the sort, one of the source words that you use uh, in the language of your book. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because it is so important throughout the book. Sure, thank you. And ironically enough, I almost titled the book, Adam, Children in Distress. I went back and forth and I did some work with my editor and we went with the current title of help from the principal's office. But I do use the word distress a lot because out of all of the different descriptors I can use that kind of fully encompasses some of the um, uh, particular challenges that plague the, the children and families I work with, um, to, to name a few, anxiety, depression, ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, the common thread that I found is that all of these children are in some form of psychological distress and all of them are having difficulties meeting the demands that are being placed on them by other uh, well-intentioned adults in their lives uh, and as well as life and, and society in general, in general. And kids can very easily think that they are deficient in some way or that there's something wrong with them if they're not being 100% successful according to to our standards or you know anybody else's standards so yes um i'm glad you brought that up because i do feel like that particular word captures a very large group a broad range of different uh specific reasons why kids um are struggling so you you uh... You know, I like how you talk about the standards and, uh, you know, we can step into that, the false narratives that you talk about in chapter one, right? And you talk about how when a child is distressed, they tend to create a, a, uh, these, these narratives, these self-defeating narratives that can lower their confidence, that can affect them. And you take a, a different direction than I think is the norm about how parents can need to see that, first of all, because most don't. They will say, well, you know, you're being, and they put a label to it. And we're going to get into those labels because you talk mm -hmm. about that later on in the book. But um, you really go into how we can immediately out of the gate when we see our child distressed, um, we can begin to identify the narratives that they're having. Could, would you mind talking a little bit about that? Because it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks again for bringing uh, that point up, Adam. So I think sometimes the hardest part is parents, educators, other caregivers, um, particularly for young children. And my book is intended to um, target those raising kids 
roughly five to 11, but give or take a year on either end, I think it is applicable enough. Um, sometimes kids um, not only don't know how to get their needs met, um, they're emotional, they're physical, um, or their broad mental um, needs, but they don't even realize that they're missing something. Um, mm. And, you know, there's a level of self-awareness that doesn't develop a little bit until, um, you know, later in life and, and uh, as, as kids get into the double digits and have more life experiences and there's more brain uh, neurodevelopment um, that takes place. So kids live in a very... Uh, isolated world compared to the world that we as adults lived in. And of course, we once lived in um, a much smaller world when we were kids ourselves. Um, but I think that it is very helpful for me as a parent and certainly as an educator to um, always make a conscious attempt to look below the surface, um, the behavior. You know, if a child is refusing to play with a group of kids, there's probably a reason for it. Um, he or she is probably just not trying to be difficult to to the adult who is trying to kind of force the social engagement. You know, the yeah. child who in class, this is very common, um, you know, in elementary school that's disrupting the class or uh, being disrespectful to, to his or her teacher. There's probably something bothering the, the kid and and uh, at a conscious level, they don't even realize what is going on. So rather than look into what is happening within my psyche, it's easier to just kind of externalize it, kind of put it out there. Um, and that kind of helps them vent some of the frustration, sadness, you know, you name the, the emotion or the frustration that um, allows them to feel a little bit better in the moment but it's not a long-term fix. The long-term fix comes from adults like me and you and your and your audience members um, and anybody else who works or raises kids to um, know that there are needs that kids need to have met um, emotionally, primarily, I would say, um, and that oftentimes we have to ask questions. We have to ask questions and we have to, um, you know, uh, really investigate sometimes. Yeah, we can get kind of tactical right in there because I know in your book, you talk about some of the things that parents can do is, mm -hmm. uh, is look for their tonality. Sure. Uh, and that, you know, and you reference five to 11 year olds uh, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, kind of, I have to be honest with you, Scott, some of the stuff in your book, I realized that I didn't start queuing in on until I was in my 40s, like much later on in life. And, you know, as a, as a teacher and trainer myself, I've worked with thousands of kids over the last two decades mm -hmm. in my martial arts school, in the work I do. But this emotional resilience and the effects that the uh, emotional state when children are in distress uh, that you really speak to uh, is is important. Um, can you talk about some of the ways that we can, some of the tools that we can use as uh, as parents to identify in this moment that we're talking about right now, like like you say, uh, the use of you know you know let them speak and really kind of and and hear their tonality and spend that moment and, and, and rather than speaking for them, right? Rather than uh, looking at it through the paradigm or the prism of a you know forty something year old man, uh, but let's let's kind of what are, what are those next steps, would you say? Well, importantly, we want our kids talking to us. 
And sometimes what happens, and you know, I've been guilty of, of it, just like any other parent or, or educator at, uh, from time to time, is when kids are saying things we don't particularly want to hear, um, we, we tend to instinctively try to get them to stop saying what they're saying. But that can have an inadvertent negative effect where kids might get the message, um, even though it's it, it's usually not intended to be the message that, um, you know, I don't have anything of value to adults for me to say that what I'm saying is mm. important. So I'm just not going to try to communicate what's going on or I'm not going to try to um, take an active role in, in making myself feel acclimated or safe in the world. So we want our kids talking to us. Um, and I think it's also important, Adam, that, you know, as adults, to the best extent we can, because we all come with some of our own baggage to some extent from our childhood. We're not completely <laughs> flawless. <laughs> and I can attest to that. And I can talk a long time about that, believe me. Absolutely. And I just wrote a blog entry, I just posted it yesterday on uh, the childhood baggage that we sometimes bring into our kids' lives without even knowing it. But if if um, kids can know that it's okay to feel angry, it's okay to feel sad, it's okay to feel frustrated, um, but the key is that they feel supported in their ability to manage those feelings. Um, you know, and also I think there's something to be said for it. kids need to know that we as parents um, or, or relevant adults in their lives that we are flawed, you know, that we care about them, we love them, we're here to support them, we're, we're smart enough people to raise them to be, uh, you know, healthy, happy, functioning adults, but we are, um, we have our own flaws. And, and that's okay too, because sometimes I think what happens is kids can get this um, kind of misconstrued perception about what it is to be a, an adult that once you're an adult, you're perfect or you don't make mistakes or, you know, there uh, nothing is ever wrong. And yeah. the, the problem is that I've, I've um, you know, observed is that kids turn into teenagers and eventually young adults and when they realize they are imperfect, like everybody else, they think they're deficient when, when they're really not. They're just a human being who's struggling like the rest of us to, to better ourselves. So sure. modeling, you know, those kind of pieces and allowing kids to um, have the emotional experiences they're having and, and not make them feel ashamed. Not that we want, we'll ever try to make our kids feel ashamed, um, but just you know, making sure that we are not sending the indirect message that there's something wrong with them because of what they're saying or, or expressing how they're feeling. Hey there, I want to take a quick break from this episode. I hope you're enjoying it. I want to share with you the work that we do over at Close Quarter Dad. It's a community of men who are learning how to really promote resilience, confidence, and a lifestyle of safety with their children. We have programs and courses inside the community that range from how to teach your children personal protection, loss prevention if they get lost in the woods or in a wilderness setting, and we also go over uh, abduction scenarios and what to do in those cases. It's the worst case scenario, of course, for us as dads. Um, then we go on to um, family safety and their role in the unit of the family, and then the final quarter is on last resort training where we talk about how to communicate and work with your ch children on certain 
catastrophe situations, um, extreme crisis situations, and some real heavy mindset stuff. Um, and how to do this at all ages, because communicating to a five-year-old little boy is a lot different than a 16-year-old little girl. I don't need to tell you that. But life comes at us in all different directions, and we want to make sure as dads that we're there and available to make sure that our children have what it takes when it counts when we're not there for them. If this sounds interesting to you, I'd love you to hop on over to Close Quarter Dad, learn about the community, and if you have any questions, I'd love you to contact me directly. I'm available for you. Um, let's get back to the podcast. It's hugely important, and I, you know, I, I sadly, I, I start to think we talk about this, Scott, that us as adults, yeah. and you're referencing that we bring that child, we bring that baggage, we bring that pain and that hurt into these discussions. It's like, what level of work do we need to do to be able to do this right? And I just don't think there is a, you know, there's no, there's no signpost for that. It's just, you know, we got to show up and we got to be present. Yeah. You said something following this topic about that I found really interesting, which was the younger children are, the more impressionable they are. And you're talking about your book really centered on the five to 11 years of age. But I was wondering if you could, are there, if you could share this, if, are there specific kind of, you know, in your, in your line of work, you'd say, okay, you know, between, between three and six, we have before age of reason. And then from seven to nine, we have this, is there, is there something that you see specifically in your line of work when we're talking about emotional developing emotional resilience, uh, and being present and when we should start to shift. Now I know in the book, you you made this really fascinating point about middle school is no man's land. <laughs> and I had never thought of that. And we're going to go into that in a little while. That was yeah. fascinating. But right now, when you talk about the different, uh, you know, the, the uh, impact that we have, the younger they are, can you clar clarify that a little bit for me? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what I mean by that in the book, Adam, is that the younger kids are, well, the more they directly need us um, as parents and, and caregivers to, to meet their needs and educators in school too, uh, preschool you will see that there's usually a very high staff to student ratio. And that's because um, the physical safety, you know, is a paramount at that point. You don't want um, three and four year olds uh, putting objects in their mouth that could be a choking hazard or, you know, getting to um, stairs or, or getting their hands on a, a potentially dangerous object. So, mm. um, you know, the, the thought is that as kids uh, develop and have life experiences, they can start to navigate some of those uh, more primitive uh, ways of functioning um, a little more independently, and, and most do. And then as we get into kindergarten, first, second, uh, and third grade, I suppose, you know, we start to expect a bit more from our kids. We expect them to pick up on social nuances uh, with their peers, with their classmates, and, and learn how to um, enter groups and work um, with other kids and to be part of a classroom and a, and a family environment. Um, to, so rather than just being a, a single unit, they're part of a, a larger unit, a classroom, a family, et cetera, a team if they play sports or do dance or, or something of the arts. Um, but then as kids get older, and I, I think of the double digits, it, it, you know, pre-adolescence really does start to set in these days. Um, mostly, I would say, Adam, around 10, certainly 11 and 12. 
um, you know, at that point, we start to expect a lot more for, from our kids as they get closer to middle school. And oftentimes it's easy to take our um, kids' ability to function in life for granted, especially when they're not particularly struggling. You know, and I've had that own experience uh, as a parent before with with one of my children where the thought is, OK, he's you know, he's doing fine. He's getting good grades. He has friends. Everything's all right. But there's always something going on beneath the surface in, in young kids mind. And when I say young, I, I suppose I'm thinking, you know, five, six, all the way up through 10 to 12. And um Oftentimes, you know, kids don't know if it's okay to talk about things. They might think that the adults in their lives will perceive what they're thinking about or stressing about insignificant. Um, but to them, it's not, you know, their worlds are much smaller. Uh, the people in their lives, uh, it's much more confined in terms of the um, people who do have influence. But I think that whether we know it or not as parents, and, you know, I, I try to be a little bit lighthearted in the book about it. Um, because it can add some pressure to us as parents and, and elementary school uh, educational staff. But kids are watching everything we say and do, and they are picking up by our cues how they should go about functioning as a uh, productive um, adult. And it, it might seem that, that that sounds a bit dramatic, and perhaps it's a little bit dramatic, but if we look at it incrementally over time, without kids realizing um, that they are taking their cues uh, to eventually learn, you know, how to be an adult, that, um, you know, makes it that much more important that we as uh, parents and, and caregivers, we work on our own baggage, so to speak, you, as you mentioned earlier, Adam, that we all bring our own stuff, uh, you know, from our earlier life experiences. So, you know, parenting, it forces us to take a brutally honest look at ourselves for the benefit of our kids. And it's hard work, but it's wor work worth doing not only for our kids, but for ourselves, too. Um, so, I, yeah, that's those are my initial thoughts, at least on the on the influential piece that you mentioned. I can say that if uh, if a dad reads the first two chapters of your book alone um, mm -hmm. and and I'm not this isn't to you don't really say that this book is amazing, but if, if they read the first two chapters of their book, of your book, they are going to have a different relationship with their child going forward. And if, if they put in place uh, what you talk about just in those first two chapters, now the remaining, I think it's 10 chapters, the whole book is 12 chapters, I believe, is that right? Yes. Um, you get into a lot of stuff. I'd like to talk about, um, move into, you say joining forces with the school. Yeah. And I'd like to kind of take a step out of the book and selfishly take the opportunity to speak to a school principal and um, share with you some of the concerns that men who are trying to uh, mitigate bullying or feel that they know the answer to uh, talking to their kids about if a fight happens. What do they do to teach their kid to protect themselves? Uh, you know, you hear that that saying that, you know, I would rather my kid, you know, uh, not get beat up and, or, you know, or, you know, be able to protect himself and I'll deal with the principal and the school. Uh, I just don't want all these things. There's there's a lot of different 
a lot of different ways that uh, that parents are a little too cavalier and don't really look into the trauma and the chemical dump that a child is happening in those states. Uh, you know, as a martial arts instructor, I always ask parents that, um, you know, wh why are you here? Why are you, why are you bringing your child to my school? And what do you want to, what do you want to get on a martial? Well, I want my kid to be able to defend him or herself. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Get a good attorney. That'd be your first step if that's what your interest is. <laughs> right. Um, but, but, you know, we do have, there, there is a reality here and you're at, you know, your role is really at the tip of the spear. And so, and, and it must be a lot of responsibility, both as a parent, um, but as a school leader, uh, when we get into the discussion in my space, a lot about zero tolerance and the zero mm -hmm. tolerance policies at a lot of different schools. And, how do we how do we bypass that? How do we protect our kids? How do we speak to our children about the fact that no, you can stand up for yourself, um, but be able to guide them in a certain way so that they understand what that means truly. But I'd like to hear from the school. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've had a lot of tough conversations with dads who are emotional. Something has happened. There's you know, mm -hmm. it's been post event. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've run the gamut with it, but what's the advice that you give to dads specifically about when a child feels threatened, physically threatened? Yes, they should. You know, I, I say they should go to a parent or, or I'm sorry, go to a teacher that you trust mm -hmm. and say, I'm scared for my safety and please help me. And if you can't, please take me to another teacher who can. Mm -hmm. Um, but from a principal's position, what should these men be telling their kids and helping them through? Great question. Such an important topic, so pressing in a lot of ways, Adam. My first thought, and I'll step out of my principal role for just a moment, and <laughs> be a 42-year-old male who was raised in a very different time. You know, when I was in elementary school, um, kids would be more inclined to settle disagreements themselves at recess or or after school. You know, those days are long gone. Um, and I think that is a good thing. But uh, the other side of the coin of that is that it at times kids and families can be a little over-reliant, um, not on the schools or, um, per se, but um on things well, aren't they out. i mean don't don't let, let's let's stop there i, I sure. think they are it's, it's been my observation well i think yes and mine too not necessarily in my school but just generally speaking because there's no getting around the hard work that kids have to do you know there are times um and i've talked with both of my kids about this at various stages of of their life and i'm sure i will continue to as they grow older into middle and high school is that sometimes you're going to be in a position where you're the only person who can stick up for yourself um you know and i make it clear that there are i try to make it clear i should say i don't know how clear i am but i try to drive the point home that there is a way to stand up for yourself so that you're showing yourself respect that you respect who you are as a person and that you are worthy of better treatment than you're receiving from you know, this classmate or this kid down the street or in the neighborhood uh, on the team, whatever the case is. So 
kids at some point are going to need to learn how to self-advocate. They're going to have to be able to stand up to people, other kids who are giving them a hard time. Does that always work? No, it does not always work. Um, but Adam, unless there's an imminent physical threat, um, at which point, yes, always we have to get an adult that's trusted to intervene to prevent injury. Um, you know, while the stakes are low, while kids are fairly young in the single digits, they are um, best served by having opportunities to practice asserting themselves when there are very minor, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, minor uh, peer quabbles or instances of being picked on. So yeah. that when the stakes raise and they get older and they're into middle and eventually high school, there are all other kinds of factors that come into play as kids start to, you know, go through puberty and start driving and there's substance abuse potential. And so before all of that comes into picture, kids ideally will have had practice and opportunities to face some of their fears because it is, uh, you know, it is a fearful task to stick up to uh, for yourself as a young kid looking another child or group of kids in the eyes when you're being mistreated but it it can and it usually does get easier you know once kids can have that first second third time of just learning how to assert themselves not that it's going to fix all their future problems but the foundation will have been laid where you know that even if it's difficult even if it's scary it's still okay and healthy even and certainly helpful to tell the boy or girl who's picking on you or whatever the case is that you don't have any rights to talk to me like that. You need to stop, you know, please don't do that anymore. So there's a way to be assertive while civil. And those few statements are some that I've kind of offered um, for younger kids. But I think the younger we can help our kids start asserting themselves uh, for their own benefit then uh, the better off they'll be later in life. Those are some great points. Um, so if we take it to the parents now, mm -hmm. uh, you talk about the parents communicating with the school. And let's say in one of these instances that we're talking about right now, where a child does feel uh, emotionally or physically threatened, they do advocate for themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. But oftentimes the parent comes in with their, you know, maybe we talked about before, their their past experiences as a reference, they're over-emotional. But then oftentimes you say, and I found this interesting, that some parents come in and they, they, they don't communicate correctly with the school because of shame. And you said, I think you said shame and grief sometimes. Like parents come in and they're like, they're feeling like I didn't do enough. Or uh, can, can we talk about... Uh, in situations where a child is facing some type of uh, some type of condition of I use you know the well, word cruelty, whether it's bullying or whether it's a fight that just happened, or not just that they're a victim, but they're a bystander and they don't know what to do. And as a result of that, that that itself can be very traumatizing because you freeze and you just don't know how to respond. Or, and I know a lot of parents sometimes don't like hearing this but when their kid is the bully, because that too can be traumatizing. And I know a lot of parents immediately are like, you know, they just want that, you know, they want him to be punished and put in jail and sent away and not, not be present in their child's life anymore. But this is a child we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So 
I really see this trifecta of three victims and and really oftentimes I would imagine in, in your role, three very different discussions that take place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you do talk about how parents need to come and work with the school, uh, with the administration. I just wonder if you could step into that and, and maybe share with us some of those uh, best practices that we can use. Sure, absolutely, Adam. And I'm glad you brought this up in one of the um you know, uh, comments that I make in my book or the points that I speak to is, um, and I've been in, I've been fortunate to have worked in now my fifth school district, uh, district, excuse me, in Connecticut, and all of them, all of them have been great. As um, is uh, Southington, where my kids are going to school, which I worked for a year or two um, here in my hometown. But um, the truth is. Schools don't want to fight with parents. They they want to get along with parents. They want to work with parents. Um, now, I'm not saying there aren't any times when um, administrators don't always exercise perfect judgment or don't have all of the facts. I'm sure there are cases like that. And again, I'm lucky. I haven't really seen any of that where I've worked or my own kids' school district. But um, a lot of times schools are stretched a bit thin. Um, with with staffing and resources, but there are obligations to investigate uh, bullying um, claims. And, you know, uh, parents should know that on their child's website, uh, the school district's website, excuse me, there should be an electronic link to file and uh, complete a bullying um, uh, investigation claim that should be up there. Um, so I just want to- You're saying that's on, on, uh, on, that's a, that's on every school. That's a thing. Every it school's website. Yeah. yeah, it should be good it to should. know. Yep, absolutely. There should be a link that's hopefully not too hard to find. But um, one point you mentioned about the bullies, um, quote unquote bullies, you know, what is his or her, her deal? How did he or she get to that point of mistreating other people? And almost always the research clearly states that kids who mistreat other kids have been mistreated themselves and they have low self-esteem so they look for in their mind um perhaps younger or smaller or otherwise vulnerable kids who can uh be the target of their wrath and um kids who kind of fit the description of of bullies as the criteria lays it out um they're they're looking to make themselves feel better and they um oftentimes think and maybe even assume that by uh, mistreating another kid, some of um, the mistreatment they've experienced, those feelings are gonna be uh, alleviated, but they're not. All that happens is more problems arise. Now there are you know, potential school consequences, if it's significant enough, potential legal consequences as we get into high school. So it's a, it's a very difficult cycle to break, the, the bullying piece, but it can be done. And the idea is that parents, families, and school districts, the only uh, true way to to help kids along those lines, to break those cycles is for uh, the families and schools to work together. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, and it can be done. And sometimes it's, it's difficult and challenging conversations need to take place. And uh, it requires parents oftentimes to um, take perhaps for the first time an, an, an honest assessment of, uh, the behavior of their child or 
um, you know, that he or she is presenting in a way they didn't realize in school or, or out of school, especially, you know, online social media can be a very tricky piece. Uh, and that is only increasing as the years go on. It, it seems with, with more platforms and kids are um, becoming increasingly tech savvy. But um, school districts, you know, parents need to know they do want to partner with you. They don't want to argue with you. They do not want you to leave feeling like you haven't had your needs met. Quite the opposite, you know, in my experience. You know, at the same time, I'm sure in your work, you can really, uh, when you see a child demonstrating this type of behavior, I'm sure it's pretty clear. You, you can see right away what's going on at home. I mean, that's a, it's, a, it's a lens right into the home, isn't it? And, and sometimes those conversations with the parents can be, uh, like you said, could be challenging. Uh, and you, you talk about this quite a bit in the book about, and you, re, you revisit this, and I think you're really trying to send a message to the parents that your kids are more perceptive than you think they are. And what's going on at home, they see that, they're witness to it. And they are going to demonstrate that at some point in their life. And when we go into that next place where you really go into um, oppositional defiance, and maybe we can move into this because it's it's sure. an important piece. Uh, when we're talking about, you know, uh, not necessarily bullying, but um, oppos oppositional defiance. And one of the big takeaways I took from your book was here, where you mention or you speak to, and I hope I get this right, but... Uh, you say that too many parents are looking for the the why and the reason and not so much looking at, okay, we need to do this right now. We need to fix this. We need to resolve this. And did I get it right that um, then we can go back to a root cause, but right now we need intervention in, in, in instances of oppositional defiance. Did I get that right? Yeah, I think you're. Yeah, you're on. You're on right on target. I think the point that I was probably trying to make in that section, and I've certainly had conversations with with other colleagues in, in, in education and parents and outside therapists. Um, and I and I learned this from a, a clinical psychologist many years ago um, when I first started off in education, and it really resonated with me that it's okay and 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 really needed to do two things at once to tend to the immediate problem that is on the surface that is causing the child distress. Um, you know, that could be an ongoing conflict with a, a classmate or something that's going on um, at home with, with explosive behavior or isolating in, in his or her room. Um, you know, we wanna look for uh, practical um, interventions, um, you know, and, and motivators. Uh, so we want to do that, but we also don't want to lose sight of the basis for the bother, I guess is a term I would use. Yeah. Uh, you know, what is causing him to have explosive behavior? Now, sometimes it's, um, you know, uh, mostly or all biologically based and, and there are medications, uh, psychiatric medications that can help that. But in my experience, there's at least some semblance of something going on in the child's environment that's leading to um, a heightened level of distress there. So, um, you know, there, there are plenty of um, licensed therapists out there and, uh, you know, there are resources available for parents to get connected, um, you know, to get connected, excuse me, to um, outside providers if it's needed to tend to some of the bigger picture pieces. 
Um, but certainly if there are things going on at school, um, you know, the day-to-day the -day stuff needs to be tended to quickly before it spirals and, and it exacerbates some of the uh, the deeper deeper rooted issues that are leading to the problem behavior or the isolation or the emotional distress in the first place. Um, it's not easy, but um, it can be done. And sometimes it's a trial and error process. And you know, I want uh, parents to know that we don't all get it right on the first time. And, and a lot of us don't get it right the second or third time. Uh, to figure out exactly what we need to do to help our child who's struggling in some way. Um, but that's okay. We keep trying. We rely on our support system, extended family, family, friends, and certainly the schools. Um, you know, it's important to know that all schools should have at least one mental health professional there, a school psychologist. Um, I'm a school psychologist, a school social worker, uh, a counselor, there are resources there in the school, and there are plenty of licensed professionals outside of the school setting. So it can it can feel like a lot at times, uh, but I'm hoping, and I have a chapter or a sub a subchapter at least dedicated to to this topic, Adam, of of re when to reach out to professionals and how to do it, and and how to find how to find credible ones. That right there is a uh, is a big topic. It's massive mm -hmm. in itself, and I'm, I'm looking forward to your book on that one topic alone because I see that with parents who are just saying, "My kid needs to get help. I need to send him to a therapist." What I take from this, though, is that for for dads specifically, mm -hmm. when our child is displaying some type of some level of defiance. Oftentimes we can hear maybe mom being like, why is he doing this? I don't understand. Is it because he's hanging out with this? Always looking for that reason where what needs to happen is like, okay, we can get to that later. This is what you're saying, right, Scott? We can get to that later. Right now, what we need to do is, is, is get him the help or her the help that they need in this moment. And then I like how you go forward and you talk about communicating with your child and something that I, I, I applauded because in my own work, I really try to inspire parents to not use labels. And you really, uh, you, uh, you put a highlighter on this one about don't, don't tell your kid that they're being oppositionally defiant or they're being this or they're being that. Because you say that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you said that they know they have a problem. They don't need a label attached to it. What they need right now is help. I was wondering if you could speak to that. Is that is that accurate? Did I get that right? You did. Thanks for bringing that up, too, Adam. So, yeah, labels they they are helpful and they're necessary, but there's limitations to the usefulness of labels. So, for example, and for special education, in order for a child to receive special education services, they have to qualify under a label: um, learning disability, emotional disturbance other health impairment, which includes ADHD, anxiety, depression. So that's like, that's the school side. Clinically, uh, insurance companies are going to require a clinical diagnosis in order to reimburse, um, uh, you know, families uh, who are having their child or, or their family for that matter in, in some kind of therapy with a licensed therapist who, who can bill insurance. But for the most part, that's where it ends. And I think what happens is going back to the uh, high level of perceptive, uh, you know, perceptivity of kids. Uh, speaking of which, I wouldn't be surprised if my 11-year-old is listening to this interview right now. But 
um, they hear what we say about them. Um, and, and I would even take it a step further, Adam, and say the kids um, can uh, understand our facial expressions, our, our gestures, our body language. They don't even need to hear the words most of the time. They get what we're thinking and how we're feeling about them, especially if it's negative. And there's really no room to hide from that when you're a parent of small children or you work in an elementary school because you're always going to be highly visible unless they are in a completely different room with a closed door or asleep. Um, other than that, kids know. And, um, you know, that that goes back to kind of uh, the sentiment that I try to instill, um, you know, in my book and in my blog entries and in and, and other uh, forms that we don't have to be perfect parents. We just have to be authentic and we have to have our kids' best interests in mind, um, you know, and, and everything can be accomplished that needs to be uh, accomplished from there. Parents, sometimes we just need to be good enough. And that might um, help take some of the self-imposed pressure that we put on ourselves as parents and early childhood educators, uh, primary school educators. Um, but I think that is important to know that their kids are listening, they're, they're watching us. And it might not be the case that they latch onto a particular comment, they may or um, remember um, a, a, you know, an eye roll that mom gives dad, dad gives mom, whoever, um, but it's, it's the uh, cumulative effect, excuse me. Um, it's, the, it's the very minor things in isolation that build upon each other that without the child even knowing starts to build um, their self-perception, how they see themselves. Kids are gonna see themselves the way they think adults see them. And they understand how adults see them by the words we say to them about them and our behavior around them. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a lot to think about. I, I, yeah, I don't wanna dismiss the, the, the next areas of your book. You spend some uh, really wonderful time uh, talking about uh, ADHD and attention deficit issues. And then we, we go into depression in the book. There was a one point I want to bring forward just for the listeners, which uh, really resonated with me when your child is, uh, is demonstrating sort of that uh, kind of uh, they're having some emotional challenges and it's, it's okay to let them know that you're there and that they're not lonely. I think that was like the most important thing that you brought forward when we were talking about depression. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't, I feel, I, I feel like I don't want to be dismissive about that because it's wonderful, but in, in to be sensitive of time, I do want to get into something where you go into after that, you talk about anxieties and the three different forms of anxiety, separation, interaction with peers and phobias with the the work that we do as fathers one of the major anxieties that we may be creating without even knowing it is that separation anxiety being overly protective not putting our children in states of discomfort meaningfully like intentionally and, mm -hmm. and after i read after i read about this this section on anxiety in your book it really sounds to me like you're trying to send an underlying message to parents of 
Let your kids have independence and be problem solving when you're not around. Put them in uncomfortable situations so that they have that exposure so that will limit them from the risk of anxiety going forward. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit because this was a really, really important part for parents to understand. Uh, and, and, and yeah, so what, what, what can we talk about here? Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad you brought that up. And, and I will say in the 20 plus years I've been working with kids in school and hospital settings, Adam, what, what I'm seeing um, and hearing uh, these days, the last couple of years, um, it's higher than ever, uh, generally speaking, with, with young kids and, and, and families in general. Everybody's under a lot of pressure for, uh, for many different reasons, you know, whether it's um, economic, the geopolitical stuff going on. Um, you name it, there's plenty of reasons for families to be under stress and kids pick up on it and they bring some of that stress uh, with them throughout their school day and, and their other environments. But, you know, it's interesting. So as a, as a middle-aged man, um, you know, I, uh, you know, uh, come from an um, era of childhood where um, fathers weren't always as directly involved perhaps in their child's lives, and I'm making a general statement here, um, you know, as um, the current generation, you know, um, fathers that I'm uh, friends with or know of or, or, or communicate or, or observe or, or just see out in public, you know, fathers are really involved and there is the potential for parents to be a little too involved. So, Sometimes, as you mentioned, uh, the, the separation anxiety, <clears throat> pardon me, we want to, um, our kids to know that we're there to support them, um, but while they're young, we also want them to be able to navigate um, their media environment on their own as much as they safely can and within reason. We don't want kids to be overwhelmed with pressure on um, doing things socially, interpersonally, or recre recreationally on, on their own but we want to make sure they're getting opportunities to dip their toe in, so to speak. And, you know, I do want to point out that when it comes to anxiety, depression, ADHD, um, there are instances where, um, again, I mentioned earlier that there's a biological basis that the brain chemistry makeup, um, you know, just puts kids at a disadvantage and, and they need pharmaceutical assistance to, to help them or at least consideration of that. But even if that is the case, we don't just leave it at that. You know, we do two things at once. We, we treat medicinally if, if prescribed by the physician or another um, prescriber, but we also um, work with our child in the, in the outside world, you know, in their daily lives to, to help them try to navigate the, the social pieces, leaving um, their parents' side to go to school. You know, I've seen a lot of younger students grabbing at their 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 mother's or their father's legs on the first day and not wanting to go into a big scary school so they think and then after a couple of days it's like they've been there for years and you know they've grown comfortable with their classmates and the and, the, and their teachers um but it, it you know i think if i can have um you know people take away one item uh, from my book or some of the, the blogs or the interviews like this that I'm doing is that we want to start young with our kids of giving them those independent opportunities while the stakes are low 
and they will be set up later in life much more beneficially than if they didn't. Yeah, it was uh, at this point where my favorite quote of the entire book was, uh, you said, encourage courage early on. And I love that. It was great. So uh, gonna, I, I might use that, but I'll quote you. Um, <laughs> Scott, the last thing I'd like to do is go back. We mentioned this a little bit. Uh, we mentioned mm -hmm. it early uh, in this episode. We talked about middle school, and this is a really fascinating point for me. And I was wondering if we could speak specifically to dads about this. And I want them to hear this message because this was this is sort of a new paradigm for me. I have a 10-year-old daughter who's graduating fifth grade this year, and she's going to middle school. Now, I've already had three kids, two boys and one girl, already go through middle school. I've got mm -hmm. one son graduating college this year. I've got another one graduating high school, and i got another one graduating elementary school. So um, I've got some experience with middle school, but now this year, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your advice. I'm going to approach it this way, and I want... I want the dads who are uh, who are still with us on this episode to really take this home. And you talk about that, and this is so relieving, you talk about that this is a period that should be an opportunity of gradual release for your children, where they now carve out their own social world. And that's a good that's a good period of time. You know, some it's you know, middle school is is fifth to eighth grade. So you have three years of that smooth transition. And while it's some of the craziest years for parenting, we need to also understand that, uh, you know, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's something around like by the time your children graduate from high school, you have already have spent 80% of the time in your life that you'll be spending with them. And then when they go off to college, then mm -hmm. there's that, you know, that's, that's shocking. Mm -hmm. So these three years is a transition from, like you said, holding on to your leg, to letting them go and being witness to that and being there to help them through that. Um, as our last topic here uh, in this discussion, I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about that and, and maybe give give a little bit more depth to it. Sure. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And thanks for paying so much attention to my book. I'm honored that you you know took the time to read and think about it like this. Adam. It's a great right. book. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You know, if we think about the typical life expectancy um, into at least the, the low 80s right now in our country um, and the legal adult age, um, you know, of 18, uh, people are going to spend more than three quarters of their lives as adults. So as parents, you know, how do we approach that? How do we reconcile that fact? What do we do with it? Um, you know, so I think we do two things at once. We raise our kids um, with support and love and guidance and make sure they are getting their needs met very early on, um, you know, preschool, of course, elementary school. But then as kids start to get into the double digits and, and move into middle school, as seems to be the case, um, you know, with, with uh, most of your children and my son right now, he's in sixth grade, he's uh, near completing his first year of middle school. Um, it, it's the opportunity to start pulling back a little bit. Um, and when I say pulling back, Adam, um, I don't mean pulling back, making sure they're physically safe, of course, or, or making sure they're properly, um, you know, uh, fed and have exercise opportunities, all, all of those things. You know, sometimes we still need to get a, uh, take care of them, of course, and maybe give a little nudge in some areas. But 
Um, for example, if uh, a child is having a, a challenging time with a teacher, um, you know, with related to homework or something on a quiz or, or uh, just communication in general, rather than getting on, you know, um, the phone and uh, I'll use myself as, as an example, you know, rather than getting on the phone and emailing um, or my wife and I emailing my son's uh, teacher, we'll talk to him about it and say, hey, have you approached her? Mm. What did she, what was the feedback she gave to you on that? So that's just a minor example, but that's a key difference, I think, from, I'll say third, second, third, or fourth grade, where, you know, we're, we're only going to have, um, for the most part, mild expectations about kids navigating their own issues with adults, um, if there are any. But it's, it's a perfect opportunity in middle school, I would say, to do this, because once kids get to high school, um, you know, a, a lot of bets are off. And not that we can't. You're not kidding. <laughs> I will find out. And I'm sure you could tell me, you know, give me some <laughs> there. I might come back to you for that, if you don't mind. But, um, you know, so there, there's such a high level of independence in, in, in high school when adolescence is in full swing and, and kids are, are you know, quickly uh, working toward that the um, landmark 18th birthday is the, to the point where they're no longer a child legally, they're an adult, um, that using those two or three years of uh, pre-adolescence, I'll call it 11, 12, uh, maybe 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, to have kids start moving out of their comfort zone a little bit, not just in school, um, but at home too, and perhaps taking on more responsibilities um, you know, uh, within the household, um, yard work, et cetera, you know, helping, um, you know, his or her parents or caregivers a, a little bit more with um, tasks that, you know, may have previously been thought of out of their uh, skill range. Um, you know, we, we want to start to expect a bit more from our kids around that time so that by the time they get to high school, there isn't this um, shock value any more than it needs to be. You know, there might be a little bit of a shock value for every child going into a big high school as a freshman, um, but we can take steps prior to them entering high school to mitigate that. Um, so that's kind of what I try to talk about in my book, especially in the middle school section. Yeah, incredibly important point. Scott, I'd like to leave off with uh, two thoughts and then hit you with a question if that's okay. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it's speaking to the dads who are listening to this episode, I just want to kind of take a moment. Uh, one one thing that stood out at the beginning of one of your chapters, you mentioned if you're you if or at least I read it as if you're reading this, you're having a you're you're you're, you're challenged with something right now. That's why you picked this book up. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's a good likelihood that you are, and the reality is is that all dads are in some way. That's part of it. It comes with the job. Sure. Uh, but you know, I like to acknowledge the dads who are spending the time in their, in their lives, listening to these discussions, who in the moment of being challenged, having a tough time, questioning their ability as a father, questioning if they're showing up right, or their kids are acting out in certain ways, things are happening where they're just like, I'm not doing this right. I just wanna really acknowledge them in this moment. If you're listening to this, I wanna acknowledge you, because if you're here with us uh, in this discussion, you are doing it right. Uh, there is no right or wrong. Uh, you know, I just uh, really want to kind of share that acknowledgement uh, with every dad who's with us in this discussion. Uh, 
And I want to leave uh, the listeners with uh, one other thing, and I'm going to bounce this back to Scott. Scott, in um, with my audience, I like to be uh, I, I like there to be something actionable for every episode. I'd like them to be able to walk away from this episode to sit down next to their their little ones, sit down next to their tweens or their teenage son or their you know their 18 year old daughter, and be able to implement something from the time that they invested with you and I here today. So I'd like I'd like you to share with me um, one of many, or if there's one real strong one that you feel strongly about, what is an action that a father can take right now through your experience that would help them in the relationship that they have with their kids? Great question. And actually, Adam, I'm going to kind of piggyback off of a couple of words that you just said through your your question uh, posing to me, and it really stuck out to me, and that's to show up. That is, um, you know, the most important thing for us as fathers to be present um, in our kids' lives, not just on the periphery and not just passively, but to be actively involved um, you know, uh, in what they are going through, not to the point where we're prying into their business and being overly intrusive, of course, and, and that actually can be a fine line sometimes too, but kids won't always remember exactly verbatim what their parents, fathers say to them uh, later in life reflecting on their childhood, but they'll remember if we were there or not for them. They'll remember right. if we were present for them and that will really stick with them, I would argue, for the rest of their lives. And, um, you know, perhaps even more importantly, or just as importantly, um, you know, we will, by being present, we are modeling how to be a father to our sons or modeling generally how to be a parent to our daughters. So that is another point I wish I had gotten to earlier. My apologies for not bringing that up, but we are, you know, kind of informally training our kids how to be parents later in life too. Oh yeah. So yeah, great point. Benefits, yeah. And, and the benefits are uh, multifaceted to being present. But um, if, if I had one actionable item to kind of try to put out there at the end, that would be it. Just, just be there, take the pressure off yourself. You don't have to have the golden nugget, of wisdom uh, in, in terms of like verbal feedback for everything uh, they say or don't say. I don't, you know, and and sometimes it's okay to be there with them in silence or just listen. That, uh, yeah, that brings us to the end. And I'd like to uh, leave the listeners with one final quote from your book uh, that kind of speaks to everything that you were just saying about how we are modeling uh, for their future. And you said, uh, you know, it's in these moments of hopelessness that children need to know that their future is filled with promise. Uh, and so true. That's so true. Scott, I'd like to know uh, where my audience can connect with you, where they can find you, where they, uh, I strongly encourage them to get the book, either Kindle uh, or they could buy it on Amazon. But how can how can they connect with you, uh, follow you on social media, uh, and get your get your resources? Sure, no, I appreciate that, Adam. So the uh, most efficient way is probably to go to my website, theguidingprinciple.com. Uh, on that site, there are links for my social media accounts: Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and I have a Facebook page that I post 
um, you know, quotes, thoughts, um, and have some interaction with uh, other folks who, you know, um, are, are uh, you know, following me or I'm connected with. So I would encourage you, please go there if you found any of this helpful. I have uh, a few blog entries. I think I mentioned one that I just posted yesterday. I have other uh, free resources too for parents, links to articles, um, quotes, uh, videos, uh, past interviews I've done to try to um, create as many avenues for support as, as I can. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to um, you know, uh, expand my reach um, as much as possible because there is a lot of need out there with our kids today. And I just want to thank you so much, Adam, you and your listeners. I really appreciate your time. You got it, Scott. Author of Help from the Principal's Office, Parenting Advice When Your Kids Have Trouble in School and at Home. Scott Rosenall, thank you so much for your time today. I look forward to hopefully uh, continuing this discussion. I know that we skimmed over stuff here. It's a massive topic. But mm -hmm. I just, last time, I just want to thank you for helping parents to become stronger and better parents to help build the next generation. Scott, thank you so much. Thank you. Much appreciated, Adam. I want to thank you for spending time with us on this episode today. It's truly appreciated. I hope you got some value from it. If you want to go ahead and leave any comments or questions, reach out to me directly. I personally answer all of the questions that you have. If you know someone like yourself who may find value in this episode, then please go ahead and share it. We'd also like to ask you to subscribe to Close Quarter Dad. This way you get updated every time a new episode comes out, wherever you're listening to this episode. Thank you so much once again, and we'll see you on the next episode of Close Quarter Dad.